I'm John David Bennett, Dean of Curricular Innovation at Mercersburg Academy. In this edition of our Making a Difference series, I interview Kyle Leininger, class of 2002. In our conversation, we talk about the innovative work that he has done as Vice President of Clinical Integration for Inner Mountain Centers in Tucson, Arizona, an organization that provides health and human services for Arizona's at-risk populations. We also talk about his virtual visit to a Mercersburg Academy intensive class last year, the advisor who helped him find his way when he was at the Academy, and the, quote, dithering path, unquote, that ultimately led to his meaningful work. All right. So um, how did you find Intermountain and what was your first role there? Well, in 2008, I was working uh, at um, the University of Arizona and I worked in a lab there studying energy healers and people that were trying to investigate whether homeopathic remedies worked. And the work environment there was really, was really wild. Very in- interesting personalities. You know, it was, a, I won't give the name of the lab, but it, it's filled with people that have kind of alternative thinking about the nature of healing. But I, I really didn't like the kind of environment there. So I, I was kind of interested in, well, what makes like a good work environment? And I started looking at a, a couple organizations um, that kind of specialized in that. And someone uh, down the down the line connected me to uh, Intermountain Centers. You know, sent me like a link because of their grounding in applied behavior analysis, which is kind of used in in the workplace um, in organizational business management. And uh, I I applied for the only job that I was qualified for, and it was the lowest paying, you know, most direct service position. Even though I had a bachelor's degree from from Vanderbilt, you really have to have a lot of experience and credentials to kind of work in different positions in the organization. So I started out in a group home environment mm. and had a really incredible experience. When the conversation that we previously had, uh, you talked about this extraordinary range of impact that you've had at Intermountain. It's remarkable. Uh, what are some of the projects and programs that you've helped develop there? Well, um, the, the first was uh, that... I got involved in for development purposes was uh, a school for children with autism um, and not just children eventually included adolescents and young adults. But uh, we started that in 2014 with an ASD focus or autism spectrum disorder focus. And the first year we had 16 students and, and about six staff. And now we have about 110 students and about 50 staff. So it's, it's grown really to meet the, the emerging need in the community. But, it, you know, schools are one thing, but, you know, you also need a community uh, focus also to be able to support people with autism and developmental disabilities. So 2015, uh, or excuse me, 2016, we got a grant from the attorney general's office for about $750,000 to pilot an integrated care model for children. And what that looked like was really good care coordination inside and outside of the organization and also just employing a lot of strategies to try to get people to connect. But what our research indicated was a few things. Like one, uh, we were able to um, improve kids' uh, physical health, their behavioral health, and their socialization and communication. And then we were also able to like impact uh, parents. Um, so frequently when you have a kid with uh, developmental disabilities, you may find yourself not wanting to go out in the community and expose them to things that may cause 
embarrassment or may cause you know, that person or child to become agitated. And what we found through our research is that parents were more likely to feel like they were able to help their child and that they were more likely to go out in the community and experience uh, the world rather than sheltering kind of in place almost. Yeah, so what inspired the founding of the, of the school? Well, um, I kind of mentioned applied behavior analysis a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's a discipline, a science that's really helpful for a lot of human challenges, but it happens to be the most effective treatment for autism currently known. In this community, there weren't a lot of places offering approaches that were grounded in, in that uh, discipline. We were also, you know, we're a really large human services organization and we were already serving a lot of people on the outpatient basis. So like in the community and we were frequently seeing that kids were just, were really struggling in school. And so we decided to come create a school to see if we could impact those students' lives, their families' lives, hopefully give them a year or two or three of um, really focused support and then uh lead them, guide them back to their home districts so that they could be successful there. So I think that was the impetus. We just felt like we could probably do better than what was going on. So last uh, winter, you worked with uh, Andy Brown and his his class, it was uh, about autism. Uh, what did you do in that, uh, in that class? Well, you asked me one project that I was involved in um, over the years. One was uh, actually with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I was uh, the state ambassador for uh, Arizona mm-hmm. for um, a campaign called Learn the Signs, Act Early. And Learn the Signs, Act Early is all about training uh, professionals like early childhood educators, pediatricians on identifying signs of autism and acting early so kids could get the support they need early on. So when I uh, worked with, uh, with their class, um, I essentially gave them a presentation about like, well, what are the signs of typical child development? How do you know when someone may be experiencing, you know, developmental delays? And then, you know, what kinds of help can you connect them with that will um, change their trajectories? Uh, we also talked about autism more generally, and the students were so cool because one in 50 people essentially is, is uh, diagnosed with autism. Um, and the students brought lived experience to the conversation. Like, I know this person, I know that person. Um, I experience this or that. It was a really cool conversation to also just bring up to life. Like I'm out there talking about statistics and stuff, but you know, you've met one person with autism, you met one person with autism and people were able to just bring that alive for one another. Uh, For those that didn't know somebody and then for others that did, I think it increased their breadth and depth of knowledge about uh, that discussion. So also within a mountain, you've done work with uh, people struggling with, with substance abuse? Yes. Um, I've done, uh, for the past few years, I've been involved in working with people with substance use disorders. We recently just got $5 million awarded to us from um, the Substance Abuse, Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. You know, that's kind of, that's really where my, my career is going right now. Do you have a story or two um, that's emblematic of the work you've done? Yeah, I, I a couple, about a couple of years ago, 
I had somebody that was on the autism spectrum and also suffering from substance use disorders, which was, uh, you know, an interesting, I don't know, an interesting uh, problem, set of problems for someone to come with. You know, most people don't know this. It's a little silent truth across the country that I learned as I got more into the field. But, you know, there are a lot of adults, particularly with intellectual and developmental disabilities, right around you that you might not even know mm-hmm. that are living in congregate care settings that are living in adult foster homes or, you know, group homes. They're in that position because they, they really need support to live their daily life. I won't give any names or divulge any major details, but over COVID, there was a gentleman that came who's right around my age um, for help. He uh, lived in a rural community. He was on the autism spectrum. He had a, um, a substance use disorder, specifically alcohol. And he was living in a group home environment. Well, in those environments, they're really not supposed to infringe upon people's rights by restricting access to things or food or drinks, even if it's harmful to the person. Um, and so the group home staff um, were you know, not keeping him from being able to go out and buy beer. And uh, over COVID, you know, because of how prevalent it COVID was in these group home environments, they weren't letting people out into the community. So the poor guy was at his group home for like eight months. The only thing he could do was go to the gas station and get beer. Well, over the course of time, you know, he developed a really, you know, serious problem, finding him, you know, passed out, um, you know, he's having major hygiene issues. He was having health issues that were resulting in him needing to go to the emergency room. People weren't really sure about his capacity to engage in like an intellectual exploration of his substance use or alcohol use. But I use the same approach that I use for 13, 14 year old, you know, adolescents with substance use disorders or 65 year old with a substance use disorder, just called the, the community reinforcement approach, which is an evidence-based treatment. Uh, we made some modifications and adaptations so that it could make it easier for him. But, you know, through that process, uh, we were able to come up with ways for him to uh, essentially like um, have reasons to, to abstain, right? You know, like he didn't really have a lot of reasons to, to stop, but we were able to come up with some of those reasons together. Uh, we're also able to um, start exploring uh, job opportunities which is something that he was really interested in. And I think one of the most important outcomes of the whole process, by the way, that person has not had a drink for uh, almost a year now, which is incredible. And that's totally voluntary, right? Nobody's restricting his access. He's just not doing it. He's also now has a team that's considering him being able to live by himself. So no longer needing that congregate care setting, but uh, maybe being able to get an apartment with like some occasional check-ins, um, but living on his own and getting a job. All those things are you know, really meaningful to this person, um, but also from my perspective, like really meaningful to the community at large, um, you know, as a, as a taxpayer. Uh, also, like I want people to use less resources if they can and um, live like the highest quality of life that they can. I think that was the outcome for this particular person. So who are some of the people at Mercedesburg Academy who had a lasting impact on you? 
Well, I mean, the first person that comes to my mind was one of my advisors while I was there, um, uh, Jim Applebaum. Mr. Applebaum, if you know him, you know that he is one of a kind. He's uh, very bright. He's like, he's funny. He's kind. He's the kind of person that would give you the shirt off his back. He made a really big impact on me, especially when I was having a hard time my senior year. He's really there for me in a way that not, not many people were. I don't know if this is, <laughs> so make it to bed or not. I, I, I'd struggled with depression um, my, my senior year. I had done a year abroad in Spain and that was an amazing experience, but it was eye-opening. And it was also, it was very, you know, I was really having to try to understand the world in a new way. And that was, that was tough. But that Jim Applebaum was like talking to me a few times a week. You know, one time, you know, a couple of times he was just like, hey, if you need like a place to, to be for a little bit alone, you can come hang out in my apartment and kind of reset. You know, Jim was one of those guys that just opened his door to me and, uh, you know, was just constantly in a mentorship capacity teaching me important lessons. I had dinner with Jim last Thursday. Oh, oh man. That's yeah. cool. Um, any- some, Go ahead. Yeah. Some other people, you know. Yeah, Rick Hendrickson was, you know, I think you may have mentioned him a minute ago. You know, he was, he was my wrestling coach and he's, he is a very determined individual. I mean, those wrestling practices still resonate in my mind as like, you know, pushing myself to the limit, you know, and I, I think there's like kind of a space like in all of us that allows us to do more than maybe we thought we could do, mm-hmm. you know, pushing ourselves a little bit. And I, I can just always remember that. The other couple of people that I was thinking about were uh, uh, Ray Larson and Jim Malone. I know Ray Ray's still there um, as a driver, and you know I'm not sure what Jim's doing now. But those, you know, I came from the city, more or less, and um, my I really grew a love wow. of the outdoors at Mercersburg. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent a lot of time going to Buchanan, James Buchanan Park, you know, exploring that area. Have and it was, it wasn't probably until my freshman year with uh, Ray Larson, where he was like teaching us tree identification. It probably seems like an academic exercise. It's kind of like, you know, it's not that impactful. It's just kind of learning, you know, dichotomies and stuff like that. I forget the term even, but uh, connecting with nature in that way and like learning, wow, there's all these different kinds of trees. That was pretty cool. Yeah. And really connecting to the place too. Yeah. Yeah. You walk by like your favorite Japanese maple and you're like, <laughs> I wonder if that Japanese maple is still there. So, yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's funny. You know, I mentioned that I'd, ha- I'd had dinner with Jim last, last Thursday. Uh, my son now has Jim alone for honors physics. And I ran to Ray this morning and I hadn't seen him in months. So when we talked uh, a couple of weeks ago, you, you described your path to Intermountain as dithering. Uh, for our listeners who are still finding their way, can you talk about your circuitous route to finding such meaningful work? Yeah, I don't know about any anybody else. I'm pretty sure other people have this experience, but it's kind of like you're told most of your life that there's paths to get towards like fulfillment and happiness. You know, when I got out of college, I was kind of like, okay, there's like so many options. I just don't even know where to, to start. And that was like a little bit, you know, that was 
almost like crippling. It was like, geez, I don't even know where to start. Um, so I just, you know, but you got to make money. So I just went out and started getting jobs and trying to, trying to search by trial and error. You know, what's that thing that's going to feel like the thing I want to do for the rest of my life? Some people get there and some, I, I think some people don't, but I just got, I got lucky that as I kept following my values and you know, the things that were important to me. And I will say Mercersburg had a big impact on those values. I, you know, I found Intermountain and uh, it was a place that, you know, shared some of those values, but it was dithering. You know, I definitely made a lot of mistakes. I like, you know, had a lot of jobs. I think I've had, you know, I had about uh, 15 jobs before I found Mercersburg. I mean, I found Intermountain and I think, uh, you know, it's okay to not know what you want to do. So in the work you do, I imagine that not every story ends happily. Where do you find your resilience in those moments? Well, I think uh, the first thing is probably gratitude. Even you kind of know what you're getting into when you take on like underdog kind of projects. It's like, or underdog relationships with with, uh, folks that are struggling. You know, there's a reason why they're, you know, why they're coming to you. Um, and a reason why you're, you're there to help. And just to have the opportunity to connect with, with individuals and, and groups is like, you know, you got to have gratitude for that. Never in the history of the world have people really been able, I don't think, to get paid for doing the kinds of stuff that like I do now. It's, mm-hmm. it's a really unique time. Um, you know, who's getting paid to like help people? That was mostly a charity. So I have gratitude for that. But there's some things that I just do you know, I have a mantra. It's like adversity is not your enemy. You know, in adversity comes opportunities to, to get stronger and, um, and to learn. Um, that one's kind of playing in my mind a lot. But then there's things I do every day that are just, you know, kind of part of my routine. And I think Mercersburg is really helpful for me. You know, I came from uh, a family that was divorced. And so I would go back and forth you know, I didn't really know what to expect every day um, in terms of like what was going to happen. You know, I loved Mercersburg's routine. You know, you get up, you go to breakfast, you go to school, you go to sports, come back for dinner, then you go do your homework. And that kind of routine and structure, I find myself really trying to really structure my day to the extent possible. Um, And part of that for me is exercise every day. I realize that, you know, Mercersburg just, you know, I played sports every season it made such a difference for me just to burn off some steam, you know, so I continue to do that. The other thing that I learned at uh, Mercersburg was meditation. Mercersburg was pretty cool. Like in, you know, the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, I don't know that a lot of schools like Mercersburg were um, looking at mindfulness and meditation, which has actually become a big part of my, uh, my clinical practice. But um, I learned guided meditation at Mercersburg and I do, I, I now do transcendental meditation every day. And I, I wouldn't, I only have Mercersburg to thank for that. I, I wouldn't have realized what a powerful tool it was if not for, for Mercersburg. So those things are kind of the, the, my resiliency. And then obviously got to, I can't like leave out my family and support network. You know, it's kind of sense of community is so important. And, you know, people you can lean on in, in difficult times, you know, Mercersburg, it was, 
uh, you know, there were teachers, mentors, you know, people I could lean on when I was having a difficult time or could help make sense of things that were hard to, to understand. Again, that was Kyle Leininger, class of 2022. Special thanks to Jen Bradley for help producing this broadcast. And thank you to Brian Morgan, class of 07, and Maddie Norris, class of 21, for writing and recording the music. If you have a classmate who's making a difference and you'd like to nominate them for an appearance on this podcast, email alumni at mercersburg.edu. Thank you for listening.